Well, we welcome all of you who are joining us online, as well as those of you who are meeting here together at Central Campus, along with those meeting at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, in South Calgary, in Bridgeland, and in Bears Paw. You know, some time ago, a young man approached me uh, and said, Pastor Henry, I've been a Christian now for well over a year, and even though I believe God loves me, I'm having a very hard time believing that he accepts me or that he's pleased with me. He said, even though there is much about my Christian life that I can celebrate, I'm still falling short in a number of areas. And I feel terrible about that because I just feel like I'm disappointing God. Perhaps you can identify with him today. Most Christians believe that God loves them, and yet they walk around most days feeling that God's disappointed in them, that he's on the verge of losing his patience with them because their Christian lives just don't measure up to his standards. Just to help you to understand that a little bit, I, I, wanna, I want you to think of a Christian that you believe is the most Christ-like person that you know. Just take a moment and think about who is that individual in your life? Do you have that person in mind? Now, don't raise your hands, but let me ask you, do you believe that you are as righteous and acceptable in the sight of God as that amazing Christian is? Now, if you think that you're not as acceptable to God as the person that you're thinking of, well, then you need to be reminded of who you are in Christ. Based on our study in Romans 5 and 6, the truth of the matter is this. If you, by faith, embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are righteous and acceptable in the sight of God as that Christian that you esteem so highly. Now, if that shocks you, or if you don't believe that, then listen carefully as I summarize Paul's teaching in Romans 5 and 6. In our study of those two chapters, you may recall I reminded us that we live in two realms. We live in the eternal spirit realm, and we live in the earthly temporary realm. The spirit realm is the unseen realm. It is the realm of completeness and wholeness and perfection. It is the realm of our spirit, the realm of who we are in God's eyes. On the other hand, the earthly realm is the visible realm. It is the realm in which we live, the realm of our soul and body, the realm of who we are becoming, the realm of growth and the realm of right and wrong. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, 18 spells this out. It says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. While both realms are real and important to God, this verse tells us that we are to focus primarily on the eternal realm, the spirit realm. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.2 says this, God made him, referring to Christ, who had no sin 
to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What this verse is saying is that when you put your faith in Christ in the eternal spirit realm, God takes your sin and puts it on Christ's account and he takes Christ's perfect righteousness and he places it on your account. Now righteousness is a gift. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it and neither do I. Like any gift, all that you can do is to either accept it or reject it. And once you accept it by faith, it's yours. God, Christ is now in you and you are in Christ. Hebrews 10, 14 puts it this way. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now this verse is actually speaking to both realms, the spirit, the, earth, the, the eternal spirit and the earthly realm. The writer of Hebrews says that we are made perfect forever, which means in the eternal realm, God sees us as forgiven, righteous, and perfect. Not because we live perfectly here on earth, but because we are in Christ and he is perfect. Now, at the same time, the writer says that while we are made perfect and seen as righteous in the eternal realm, we are being made holy here in the earthly realm where we are becoming more like Christ. And friends, you need to understand that if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, then God has permanently invaded your life and has joined himself to your spirit. He not only loves you, but he also totally accepts you. There is nothing that you can do that will make him love you any more or any less. Now you say, okay, I understand that. My question is, since I'm already forgiven and righteous in God's sight, as I live my life here in the earthly realm, am I free to ignore God's commands and live any way I want to? Well, Paul addresses these questions and more in Romans 7. And so I'm going to ask if you're able for you to stand and to join me in reading the first portion of our scripture lesson today. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ 
that you might be, belong to one another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for, its, for your word and its instructions for life. And Lord, we ask that you would just remove distractions now so that we can focus in on what it is you want to say to us. And Lord, may, may we just be open to you. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us courage to respond to what you're saying to us. For we pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, before I get into this passage, I want to point out that the law referred to in this chapter refers to the moral law of God, which is best summarized by the Ten Commandments. And I say that because you notice in verse 7, when Paul talks about the law, he makes direct reference to the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. And so as we study this chapter and as you hear me talk about or use the word law, just think of the 10 commandments. Now to help us to identify more fully with the emotions surrounding the issue that Paul's addressing here, I want you to imagine that you are married to a spouse who is a good and faithful spouse, but is a hyper-perfectionist, always devoted to doing what is right and doing things right. As a result, your spouse, though well-meaning, is critical and demanding. Now, many of you probably can't relate uh, to this at all, but just bear with me, okay? Now, you want to please your spouse. And even though you're doing your best, it's never enough. Every morning, you are given a list of things to do. And in the evening, your spouse reviews the list point by point and lets you know where you failed and where you fell short of expectations. Your spouse never affirms you for what you did right nor lifts a finger to help you. It's a miserable marriage because you repeatedly fall short and not only feel unloved and unaccepted, but you feel like a total failure. Well, that is what a relationship with the law is like when the law is your master. And of course, this is not the kind of relationship that Jesus wants to have with us. And so in chapter 7, Paul essentially says, if you want to be set free from the burdensome power of the law, then you need to understand some things. First, you need to understand the purpose of the law or why God gave the law in the first place. And secondly, now that you are 
alive in Jesus Christ, you need to understand the law is no longer your master. So let's unpack these a little more. The first key to finding freedom from the burdensome power of the law is to understand the purpose of the law. In verse 7, Paul asks a question that I raised just a few moments ago. He writes, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? In other words, is the law bad? Is the law irrelevant? Is the law no longer necessary? Well, Paul's answer is certainly not. He reminds us that there is nothing wrong or evil with the law itself. In fact, if you go down to verse 12, you'll notice he says, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. The law isn't the problem. It is our confusion over what the role of the law is when a person becomes a Christ follower. So what is the purpose of the law? Well, first of all, God gave the law to define sin for us. Look at verse 7 again. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. The law shows us what is right and wrong. Romans 4.15 says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. In other words, you can't break a law that doesn't exist. For example, you can't be charged for speeding if there isn't a posted speed limit law. And so the law defines sin for us. Furthermore, the law reveals sin in us. Romans 3.20 says, through the law, we became conscious of sin. In verse 8 to 10 here in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul affirms this, writing, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Now, before becoming a Christian, Paul was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees thought of sin only in terms of a person's external behavior. I mean, you could have murderous hate in your heart. As long as you didn't kill or hurt that person, the Pharisees believed that you were not guilty of sin. And yet in Matthew 5.21, Jesus said that murder starts in the heart. And therefore, a person who has hatred or resentment in their heart is also guilty of sin. And so a paraphrase of what Paul's actually writing here in verses 8 to 10 might read something like this. There was a time in my life when I thought I was spiritually alive, that I was in good standing with God based upon my external behavior. But then the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, 
Open my eyes to the truth that obeying the law isn't limited just to my external behavior, but also the state of my heart within. And I quickly realized how spiritually dead I actually was. That is what the law does. It reveals sin in us and also in our behaviors. Thirdly, God gave the law to reveal who is Lord in our lives. Look at verse 5. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. Now you've probably noticed that when a sign says don't, there is something within you that says do. I mean, how many signs have we seen that say wet paint, don't touch, with fingerprints all over the area? I mean, we just have to do it, don't we? Just try it, and then we go, oh, golly, the sign's right, the paint is wet. Have you ever wondered why we're like that? Have you ever wondered why we get our back up or feel that our freedom, our dignity, our creativity has been trampled on when our boss or someone else in authority make, uh, asks us to do something their way instead of the way that we would want to do it? Well, make no mistake, it's not the law that evokes that response in you. In verse 5, Paul says, it's our flesh. Our sinful passions, or what I've been calling Mr. Sin, that uses the law to tempt us to break the law. Tim Keller says, the deeper reason that we react negatively to the law or to being told what to do is because we want to be in charge. We want to be in control. We want to be free to do what we want to do. In other words, we want to be God. And that is why our first reaction to any command, anything that messes with my freedom to do as I please, arouses our pride and the rebellious spirit within us and tempts us to not do what we're being asked to do. In verse 11, Paul talks about this in his own experience. He says, For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, put me to death. Now here again, Paul personifies sin as if sin is a person who's thinking strategically. And Paul says, sin, or Mr. Sin, lied to me. He deceived me. Well, how did he do that? Remember how Satan tempted and deceived Adam and Eve? If you read that through, you're going to see elements of what I'm just going to describe in that particular narrative. Mr. Sin comes along and says, why not be your own God? Why not be in charge of your own life? 
why not be in charge of your own significance and your own pleasure? Why not establish your own standards and rules to live by? You won't be truly happy. In fact, you won't be truly free until you eject God from your life and you take matters into your own hands because God doesn't have your best interests at heart. Now you see, all of that's a lie, of course. But many people in our culture are believing and living that lie. And let's be honest. We've all been tempted to do the same thing. And at times we also have fallen for the lie that we can be Lord, that we can be the center of our universe. But make no mistake, how we respond to God's law will reveal many times who the Lord of our life really is. And so God gave the law first to define sin, second to reveal sin in us, and thirdly to reveal who is Lord of our lives. And then fourthly, God gave the law to lead us to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.24 says this, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. The primary reason God gave the law was to convince humanity of our lost condition, our need for a savior. And some people think that the way to heaven, the way to please God, is through keeping the law, through obeying the Ten Commandments or following the golden rule. And yet the purpose of the law was never to make us right with God. The law can't do that. All the law can do is help us see that we have a sin problem and point us to the solution. The law is like a mirror. I mean, you look in the mirror and you notice that you've got a dirty face. But the mirror can't wash your face. It can't fix the problem. In the same way, the law reveals our sin, but it can't save us from our sins. Only Jesus can. So that's the first key to finding freedom from the burdensome power of the law in our lives. Understanding the purpose that God had for giving the law. Now the second key to finding freedom from the burdensome power of the law is understanding and believing that the law is no longer your master. Now think back to the illustration I gave just a few moments ago about being married to a demanding spouse that you can never please, who always leaves you feeling frustrated, unaccepted, and a total failure. Now as I said, that is 
an example of what your life can be when the law is your master. Which explains why Paul wants us to understand who we are in Christ. That when we put our faith in Jesus, we died to the burdensome power of the law. In verse 1, Paul explains to his readers, even though Jewish law requires you to be obligated to the law as long as you're alive, if you die, you're no longer obligated to the law. And then in verse 2, he goes on to illustrate the same truth through marriage. Even though the law requires a wife to be faithful to her husband for life, if the husband dies, she is no longer obligated to her husband. Now remember, and I just want to point this out, this is not intended to be a commentary on how to get out of an unhappy marriage. (laughs) Those of you who are in an unhappy marriage, don't get any sinister ideas, okay? This is only an illustration. And Paul's point is simply this. The law has no power or authority over a dead person. And then in verse 4, he goes on to give the implications of that for the Christian. This is what he says. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another to him who was raised from the dead that of course being Jesus for what purpose in order that we might bear fruit to God notice he writes you also died to the law through the body of Christ What is he saying here? He's saying when Christ was crucified and died in the eternal spirit realm, those who put their trust in him were also crucified and died with him. And please note, this is not something that we did. I mean, if you think about it, you can't crucify yourself. This is something that God did in the spirit realm for those who put their trust in Christ. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ and I, the old me in Adam, no longer lives. But Christ lives in me. Now, the Bible teaches that we died to two things. We died to sin, and we died to the law. First, we died to sin. Look back to Romans 6, verse 2. Romans 6, verse 2. It says, we are those who have died to what? Sin. Not sins, because we keep sinning, don't we? But we died to sin. It doesn't say also that sin died. No, it says we died to sin. 
We were crucified with Christ and died to the power, the power of sin in our lives. And we rose with the resurrected Christ. Christ now lives in us and we live in Christ. And even though Mr. Sin continues to tempt us, we now, because we're in Christ, we actually have the power to say no to Mr. Sin. Now, in the same way, we died to sin. In chapter 7, Paul says, we also died to the law. Which means that in the same way sin no longer has any power over us, so the law no longer has any burdensome power over us. We have died to sin and we've died to the law. You can look at it this way in light of the illustration that Paul gives here on marriage. Mr. Sin was once our old husband. We died to his power and his control in our lives. Our new husband is Jesus Christ. In the same way, Mr. Law was once our old husband. But when we died with Christ, in the eternal spiritual realm, we also died to the law's power and control over us. Our new husband is Jesus Christ. Mr. Sin is still rumbling around in our body and our soul, tempting us to sin, but he's no longer our master. And Mr. Law, he's still around as well, but he is now our servant, not our master. Jesus is our master. And so to summarize, here in our scripture lesson, Paul teaches, if we want to be set free from the burdensome power of the law, there are two truths we need to understand. We need to understand the purpose of the law, and secondly, we need to understand that the law is no longer our master. Now, even though understanding these truths is very important, we will remain unchanged if we do not act on what we know to be true. And that's going to be the focus primarily next time as we delve into the second half of chapter 7. But I want to wrap up with a question for you to think about and to take to God in a few moments at the end of this message, but also to ponder and, and, and think about this coming week. And the question is this. What is your relationship with the law? Is the law your master or your servant? You ask, well, how do I know if I'm making the law my master? Well, there's a number of things we could use as a litmus test, but I'm just going to mention a couple. One of those is you struggle with the critical spirit. If you believe God accepts you only on the basis of your performance, then you will tend to accept others only on the basis of their performance. And that's why legalists can be very critical and can be very mean people. They are miserable from trying unsuccessfully to keep all the rules themselves, and so they want to make sure everybody else is miserable too. 
But the main way to tell that the law is your master is you are burdened, even crushed emotionally with discouragement in your Christian life. Like the fellow I referred to at the beginning of this message, you see the law as a taskmaster, and you regularly feel that you're disappointing or you're failing God. Or like the person who's married to a performance-based hypercritical spouse, you feel like you can never measure up. And we all know family and friends who have drifted from the Lord because they were enslaved to the law and it killed their joy, it left them defeated, wanting to give up. You know, in all my years of ministry, I have never heard anyone say, I've had it, I quit, I am sick and tired of the love and grace of God. I am sick of other Christians loving me. I'm giving up on the Christian life. I've never heard that. But there have been far too many times when I've witnessed people lose their Christian joy and just throw in the towel because they tried to base their identity and the assurance of their salvation on how good they were, on how spiritual they felt, and how many performance boxes they checked off compared to other Christians. Now, if you're a Christian, and what I just described is who you see in the mirror, then using Paul's analogy here on marriage, it doesn't mean that you're not married to Jesus. What it means is that even though you're married to Christ, you're still having an affair with the law. And you're doing that because deep down inside, you don't think, you don't believe that grace is enough, that faith is enough, because you believe the way to gain God's approval and gain heaven also requires keeping the law. And yet notice what Romans 3.20 says. Memorize this. Focus on this. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. No one. Keeping the law is not the ladder to God. Keeping the law is not the way to heaven or an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. No, friends, faith in Jesus is the way to heaven and to a full life. And so, yes, the law is important and it's good. But now that you are alive in Christ, the law is no longer your master, but your servant. Which raises the question, what does it mean for the law to be your servant? It means when you fall in love and marry Jesus, how you see the law completely changes. Yes, you still seek to obey God's laws. And make no mistake, 
If you don't obey God's commands, you will suffer the natural consequences for doing so. I mean, never forget, God wants us to obey him. He gave us the law so that it will go well with us. However, now that you're alive in Christ, your motivation for following God's commands and principles is no longer a fear that God's going to reject you and deny you eternal life if you drop the ball. No, what motivates us to obey God's law is our love for Christ, which compels us to want to please and honor him. For example, we know our Lord loves truth. We know that, I mean, he is truth. But we know that he loves truth. We know he loves integrity. We know he loves purity and generosity and goodness and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control, just to mention a few. We know he loves these things. And if these virtues really matter to him, well, then they're going to matter to us if we love him. In the same way that, you know, your boyfriend and girlfriend, you know that they like something, you know, a certain kind of food or whatever, you're going to serve it up. Because you love them. And you see, it's in this way that the law becomes our servant. It actually serves as a guide for how we can please and serve the one that we love. When we give our lives to Christ, our mindset is no longer, oh, I should obey the law, or man, I have to obey the law. No, it's I want to obey the law out of my love for Jesus. Those of you who are parents, you'll remember when your kids were growing up that you always had to hound them to take a shower, brush their teeth, comb their hair, put on deodorant. I mean, it was a constant battle. But then they grew up and met that special someone. And just like that, the war was over. No nagging, no law was needed. The love relationship accomplished what all the hounding in the world never could. In church, that's the kind of relationship that Jesus wants to have with us. Where we want to know him, we want to enjoy him, be close to him and, and follow him. So a Christian, the question is again, can a, can a Christian live any way they want? Well, using the marriage analogy, let me ask this. Is a husband and wife in a biblical marriage, I'm not talking a cultural marriage, I'm talking biblical marriage. Is a husband and wife in a biblical marriage free to live any way they want? Of course not. If you believe that, then you either don't understand or are ignoring what the Bible teaches about biblical marriage. 
Tim Keller says that marriage entails a significant loss of freedom and independence. A single person can make decisions unilaterally. For example, about where they will live, where they will go on vacation, how they will spend their time and their money. But a married person can't. And I see the guys going, yeah, no kidding. (laughs) When you marry, everything changes. And now you have a duty and an obligation to your spouse. However, because of the love and the intimacy you have with your spouse, you don't see this as a burden, but as a delight. It's a joy to serve and to honor the one that you love. And it is no different in our relationship with the Lord. And so I ask you again, who really is your master? Is it the law or is it the Lord? Make no mistake, there is no life There is no meaningful life in the law. And of course, there's no eternal life by depending on the law. A full life here on earth and eternal life with God in heaven is only found in Jesus Christ. Jesus wants to release you from the crushing demands of the law. He wants you to know that when you died with Christ, you died to the power of the law over you. And now you're married to Jesus. And not only does he love you and forgive you by his grace, he lives within you. And yes, you will fall and you will fail at times. But remember, God sees your heart. And as I've said many times before, it is not the perfection of your life, but the direction of your heart and your life that matters most to him. When you fall and you confess your failure to God, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive you. And like a loving father, he will pick you up. And he'll hold you while you mourn. And then he'll encourage you to keep on keeping on. And as you grow closer to him, reading his word, listening to his voice, talking to him in prayer, he will not only guide you in how to live and lead you in how to serve and bear the good fruit that Paul refers to in verse 4. But by his spirit, he will empower you to accomplish it. May it be so to the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and love. I invite you to close your eyes. Just bow your head for a moment. And ask the Lord the two questions that we've become accustomed to asking here. And that is, Lord, what are you saying to me through this teaching? And Lord, what are you asking me to do about it? 